0: Well, have you ever been disappointed? Perhaps I should rephrase that. How soon has it been since you were last disappointed? Has someone ever made a promise to you and then failed to fulfill that promise? Or have you had a certain expectation that a thing would go a certain way and it didn't go that way and you were disappointed and discouraged and disillusioned as a result of it? You know, my first... A uh, recollection of that, not in my own life, but in my own memory, is watching the Christmas story. And I know this illustration is out of season, all right? I should use it in an Advent series. But you know the, the movie that plays nonstop throughout the Christmas season about the boy Ralphie and his whole time over Christmas. If you remember, there's a very distinct part of that movie near the very beginning where Ralphie keeps checking the mailbox for something. If you remember what that is, he's waiting for his secret or our little orphan Annie secret decoder pen to come in the mail because he listens to the little orphan Annie radio program every night. And she always gives this message to people who have the secret decoder pen. But he doesn't have one yet. So he's waiting for it to arrive in the mail and he's got in his mind built up that this is the greatest thing that could possibly be gifted to a person. And so when he finally comes home one day after school and checks the mailbox, he, he finds a package with his name on it, and he knows what it is. So he runs all the way upstairs into the bathroom, shuts the door, and begins to get out his secret decoder pen. And then he turns on the radio and listens to little orphan Annie, and she says, all right, all you kids who have the decoder pen, go ahead and get it out because here comes the special message. And he's just you know, A1 and, and B6 and all that. He's turning on his decoder pen, and he's writing down the letters as they come. And then he he has a whole string of letters, and he reads it, and it says, Be sure to eat or drink your Oval Team. (laughs) And he's so frustrated because it turned out to be a commercial. He's waiting for this secret message to arrive, and it's just a commercial. He was disappointed. He had expectations of what this message was going to be, and he was totally, totally disillusioned by it. Ralphie knew what it was to be disappointed that day. And as silly as that illustration is, the people of God in the days of Haggai the prophet are very in very similar circumstances. They have a certain expectation of what God is going to do with their work and their labor and how he's going to bless them. They were filled with anticipation, you remember, from the last chapter last week about being delivered out of Babylon. Cyrus, the Persian king, had released them to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple And they were excited at the prospect of a restored Jerusalem and a new temple. And they believed that they could recover something of the former glory of that time in Israel's history. However, when they returned to Jerusalem, if you remember last week, their anticipation soon turned into disappointment as they were met with the harsh reality of what they saw. And this disappointment soon led to discouragement, which soon turned into apathy. And then they just gave up. And as a result of that, God sent Haggai the prophet to them to exhort them to, if you remember last week, consider their ways. Think it through what they were, how they were responding to the providence of God in this situation. Last week in chapter one, we considered the exhortation that Haggai brought to the people. You remember that? I'll just review it briefly. We talked about the reality, the results, and the response. The reality that Haggai saw with the people of Israel was that they had devoted their, devoted their time not to building God's house, but to building their own house. They had met discouragement with building God's house, and they, in fact, didn't meet as much discouragement in building their own. And so they decided to devote their time to that instead. But the result of that was the discipline of God upon the nation and upon the people, such that no matter how much they tried to build and be satisfied with this new pursuit, they couldn't quite do it. And so as a result, Haggai called them to obey the Lord and respond that the Lord would again send rain upon them, that they wouldn't experience the drought that they were experiencing and the spiritual decay that they were experiencing, because God, as he said in chapter 1, verse 9, was blowing away the blessing that would have come to them had they obeyed him. And so they got very zealous, and their hearts were stirred, and they feared the Lord, and they obeyed the Lord and started rebuilding the temple. And that's where we left off last week. But as we'll see this week in chapter two, we're going to see that it's not as encouraging as they expected it to be. They expected as soon as they were, their hearts were stirred and they started fearing the Lord and they started obeying the Lord. The rains are going to come immediately. Not so. Not so. And so what Haggai comes along in chapter two, he exhorts them with three separate encouragements. As they seek to prioritize God's house over their house, they are going to need encouragement to do so. Because oftentimes the cure for disappointment is to have our expectations recalibrated to reality. And so Haggai gives them three encouragements to stay faithful where we are facing discouragement in God's work. Did you know that God's work when you're doing it faithfully is often accompanied by great discouragement? I mean, if you're a Christian, you're involved in the work of the Lord. It's not just pastors. It's not just we've all been called. First Corinthians 1558, Paul reminds us, remain steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Why would he give that promise to them if it's not a reality? Because being in the work of the Lord makes you Not encouraged. Makes you feel like you're wasting your time. Makes you feel like that you're not doing anything of meaningful value. Whether it's parenting your children in the Lord. Or working in your calling for the Lord. Or serving in the church. Or reaching out to unbelievers. Oftentimes, it requires waiting. And patience. And discouragement. And setback. And difficulty. And obstacles. And hurdles. And challenges. We could multiply the adjectives. Throughout the stories of the Bible, the Bible is one big waiting story. You ever think about that? I mean, from the very beginning, even with the call of Abraham, he had to wait years for God to provide a promised son. Think of Noah, who in the many days that he had to work on the ark, there was never any rain, and people thought he was an idiot for keeping to do it and saying that God's going to send the flood what about David who had been anointed and promised the kingdom but had to actually wait to assume the position of the king? And then think of the disciples taking Jesus at his word by following him but having to wait until the time was coming for them to be released into ministry. Or what about the followers of God who waited 400 years in silence between the Old Testament and the arrival of Jesus? Waiting is a part of the Christian experience. In fact, the period of time that we live in right now, in this period of redemptive history, is a waiting period. God's people have been waiting for Jesus to come back for 2,000 years. And we have not lost heart. All throughout the generations, saints have come, saints have gone to be with the Lord. Their whole disposition was waiting for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who will appear and redeem us from our sin and carry us into the presence of God forever. That is the waiting posture of us even now. And so there is encouragement to be needed and encouragement to be had as we wait for the Lord. And continue to work for the Lord. So I want to give three of them to us this morning. Three encouragements to stay faithful when we're facing discouragement in God's work. Here's the first one. Work even though you don't see God's glory now. Work even though you don't see God's glory now. God promised the people in the first nine verses of chapter 2. In verse 9, he assures them the later glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace. God promised that the temple that they were building would one day be more glorious than the temple that was destroyed by the Babylonians. Now that is absolutely amazing considering how glorious the first temple was and the condition of the present temple now. In fact, Ezra chapter 3 tells us that when the older people, the younger people were real zealous and they were after it and wanting to build the temple. But the older people, when they saw the foundation being laid and what was being constructed, do you know what their response was? They cried. They wept before the Lord because after laying the foundation of the second temple, it looked like they were wasting their time. This was never going to amount to what the first temple was. In fact... Haggai kind of captures their attitude in verse 3 when he says who's left among you who saw this house in its former glory that would have been the older believers at that time how do you see it now is it not as nothing in your eyes i mean they he, he knew he could read it all over their faces this is a, i mean this looks like nothing do you know what that's like I mean, these people had obeyed God, they'd made some changes, they'd repented, they got to work, they'd experienced the measure of revival, and after four weeks or so, that's all the time that took between the end of chapter one and the beginning of chapter two. It's about a month span of time. And it felt like nothing was being accomplished. they have been working for a little while and things aren't getting any better. You know, this heap of rubble, it can't compare to what Solomon had, so I don't even... Feel motivation to go forward because it's not as good as what I saw. So I'm gonna quit. And that's so relevant to us, isn't it? In our Christian experience. Does that sound anything like your life? Sounds like mine. I think anybody who's ever undertaken a work for the cause of Christ has felt that kind of discouragement. The sense that you work and work and the product seems so paltry. You pour yourself into a thing week after week and month after month and the fruit is so minimal then you look back in history or across town and see the grand achievement of others and your temple seems so trivial and you get discouraged and are tempted to quit and put away your aspirations and drop your dreams and put your feet up in front of the television and coast because who wants to devote his life to a second-rate temple you know and it can it might be a temptation for us coming off a 21 day fast to expect expect the fire to fall Right, if we don't experience massive revival like next week, that's a big waste of time, wasn't it? I mean, it's a big waste of time to devote ourselves to an intensified pursuit of the Lord for 21 days. Recalibrate your expectations, brothers and sisters. Recalibrate. Let's have a biblical mind about this. Let's not treat a relationship with God like a business transaction. God forbid. Lord, we put in our time. Now you need to put in yours. That's a real good way to go back under the discipline of the Lord, because we didn't quite learn our lesson, did we? It's not about what God does for us. It's about God. So what was causing some of the disillusionment with these people here? Why are they so discouraged? Well, part of it's they've only done it a month. I mean, let's, it's only been a month. But I think also is that they had their focus in the wrong direction. They were focusing in on backward instead of forward. They were focusing not on the future, but the past. And when it gets to that point in in the life of a person or a church, just stick a fork in them. They're done. The best days are behind us. The glory was then. The real activity of God was back then. But in the future, it's just dark and dismal and. Nothing good's coming out of it. Because if that attitude goes unchecked, what happens is it leads to discouragement, which leads to bitterness, which leads to cynicism, which leads to criticism, which leads to gossip, which leads to slander, which leads to hopelessness, which is just done, lampstand, gone. So what is so critical here is that we learn from the lesson here is that While we love what God did in the past and we celebrate, we should, we're called to remember. I mean, how many times in the Bible does it call us to remember God's activity in the past? To be strengthened for renewed faith and renewed in our faith for future work. I mean, it's so important to remember the past. But we visit, don't live. We visit there, but we live in the present hoping for the future. We are people who are rooted in the past, but living in the present looking to the future. Philippians 3, Paul says, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God through Christ Jesus. And he concludes the passage by saying, let those of us who are mature think this way. It's a sign of maturity to be able to properly appreciate and celebrate the past while living in the present, hopeful for a better future that God has promised and that God is continuing his activity into the future. So what perspective does a mature Christian keep in mind when they're working but don't see God's glory? Now, notice Haggai gives us two perspectives here to keep working, to be strong and work. He says, first of all, I'm with you. I'm with you. Notice in verse 4, yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people. He addresses every single group. He says, okay, the leaders, be strong. People, be strong. He says, work, for I am with you. Verse 5, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Be strong. That's it. That's all we get. That's the encouragement. I am with you. Is that really all we get? Are you kidding me? That's all we get? We get the promise of God's active presence in the midst of a people? That's all we get? What do you get if you work for God? You get God. God's reward is himself. The question is, are you good with that? Am I good with that? That's a really good deal. Do any of you think that by changing your ways that your circumstances will always get better? I can't tell you that they will. They might get worse. But what I can tell you is that you'll have God in the midst of them. You'll have God in the midst of those discouraging circumstances. See, we don't come to worship to get something other than God from God. We come to God to get God. I mean, the presence, the promise of God's active presence in our midst should incentivize us enough to work for God. It did David Livingston for years in Africa as a missionary. I'll give you an example of his life. After many years of hardship and danger in the heart of Africa, David Livingston received an honorary doctorate from the University of Glasgow in Scotland. And on that occasion, he said, quote, would you like me to tell you what supported me through all the years of exile among people whose language I could not understand and whose attitude toward me was always uncertain and often hostile? I mean, that's what people want to ask, right? How would you persevere, man? They didn't like you, and you didn't understand them. And they didn't understand you. And you devoted decades. He says, quote, it was this. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. On those words, I staked everything, and they never failed. The promise of the presence of God was enough to work when he didn't see any fruit, which is why we sang out of the depths this morning, more than watchmen for the morning. I will wait for your blessings, oh, God. No, I will wait for you. When my fears come with no warning in your word, I'll put my trust. And when the harvest time is over and I still see no fruit, I'm going to be upset and demand an explanation. No, I will wait for you. I will wait for you. That's the first perspective. I'm with you work, even though you don't see God's glory now, even though the glory of the temple is not what it once was work for. I'm with you perspective 2 you're doing more than you think. You're doing more than you think. Verse six, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I'll shake the heavens. Verse seven, I will shake all the nations. Verse eight, the silver is mine. The gold is mine. Verse nine: mine, The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former says, you're doing more than you think. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. The glory of this temple will be greater than the other one. And that prophecy did come true in part, you know. It just, that that, that little phrase, in a little while, took 500 years. You okay with that? Or does a little while have to be like a month? You okay with 500 years? That's God's timetable. The greater temple arrived. And his name is Jesus Christ. In John chapter 2 verse 18, he told them, in Matthew 12 12, verse 6, something greater than the temple is here. And he was talking about himself. It just took 500 years. But their work in the Lord was not in vain. And the latter glory of the temple of Jesus Christ far surpasses the glory of Solomon's temple. Anybody debate that one? So do you demand immediate results from your work in the Lord in order to keep doing the work of the Lord? God promises to bless us, but in doing so, we must we must, brothers and sisters, commit to his timetable. So God is telling them there's something coming with this temple that you can't see. You're going to see you're you're building into something right now that you're going to have to take by faith, not by sight. So you're going to have to trust me when I say it's going to be worth it and that this work you're pouring yourself into is not in vain. And I think that when those discouragements come, we need to turn our hopes upward and we need to recognize that our God is alive, that he is with us and that we're doing more than we think. So work, even though you can't see God's glory now. Number two, second encouragement, repent even though you don't see God's blessing now. Repent even though you don't see God's blessing now. Haggai delivers this message to exhort the people not only to keep working on the temple, but also to do it from hearts that are right before God. Verse 10 picks up on the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius. So this would have been three months after the work on the temple began. So about about two months after what he just told them. So he told them, the temple that you're working on, okay, it's it's worth it, do it even though you don't see God's glory now. So two months later, he has another word for them. Things still aren't going very well. And evidently, the attitude of the people is that mere contact with the temple makes them clean in God's sight while, in fact, they are harboring sin in their midst. So the holiness of the temple is not rubbing off on them. On the contrary, their sin is desecrating the temple. So notice what he tells them. He enters into a dialogue with the priest, and he says in verse twelve, if someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? And the priest said, No, it doesn't become holy. Then Haggai said, If someone who's unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? He's drawing them back to the Levitical law. And he's saying, Okay, what are the what are the what are the laws of cleanness and uncleanness that the people of God in those days were to follow. He says, does, it, does that become unclean, touch a dead body? Yeah, the priest said, yeah, it does, it does become unclean. Verse 14, then Haggai said, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, and so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. In other words, they're not dealing with their hearts as they go about the work of the Lord. You think this is just an old covenant idea? That's like this is just the Old Testament. Well, when we are not, our hearts aren't pure before the Lord, then God's not going to really accept our labor. You think it's an old covenant idea? I think we see it all over the new covenant too. Let's look at a couple of passages. Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24 says the following. Be helpful if I went in Mark. Matthew chapter 5. Flip back here. Verse 23 and 24. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Why does he tell you to do that? Because you try to do God's work without having a pure heart. God won't accept your work. So he says, you come to worship and you got hard, you got, you're harboring bitterness, or you have a difficult, strained relationship with another brother, and you're coming, you're coming to worship and you're not trying to deal with it. That no, you're making my temple unclean. Go first, be reconciled to your brother, then come offer your gift on the altar. First Peter three seven, husbands, here's a word for us about how our lives and our conduct will impact. Not only our relationship with our wives, but also our relationship with God as well. First Peter 3, verse 7. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, and heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. There it is. Our conduct matters. Before the Lord. And our we have to make sure that our hearts are right. For God to accept our work in him. Or be pleased with it. Here's the principle. God will not bless a cause. No matter how great. Unless the people involved in it are holy. God will not bless a cause. No matter how great. Unless the people involved in it are holy. To live in unrepentant sin. And then come to the temple to worship was like dragging a dead corpse into the middle of the temple. If they thought that God would bless them just because they were involved in rebuilding the temple, they were sadly mistaken. God isn't fooled by anyone who labors for him while hiding unrepentant sin in their hearts. We all struggle with sin. That's not the issue. The issue is whether we're fighting it, whether we're repenting of it, whether we're confessing it, whether we're striving against it, that's the principle. God loves to dwell with the brokenhearted, those who are mourning. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That's mourning over our sin. That's brokenness over our sin. God loves to dwell with those people. But he's not going to dwell with people who are unrepentant of sin and expecting that if they continue just to work for the Lord and do the things that God requires them to do, that they're going to experience God, God's blessing and provision. I want to say a word to maybe some of you here this morning who think that going to church makes you a Christian. Maybe you're here and you're coming week in, week out. Say, I'm trying to get my life together. I'm trying to, you know, lead my family better. I'm trying to be a better husband, a better wife, or just a better friend or a better parent or whatever, and I just need to go to church. I just need to get my act together. I need to clean up my life a little bit. Do you know you're doing it the wrong way? You don't get reconciled to God that way. You don't get reconciled to God by offering him your sinful, defiled works. Because they're defiled. You you offer the sacrifice of God as a broken and contrite spirit. That's the sacrifice you need to be offering. Not, I'll sing to the Lord. I'll give a little money. I'll give him some of my time. I'll even serve him in certain ways. I'll chip in around the church. And God will, that will atone for my sin. No. No, it will not atone for your sin. It makes a mockery of the work of Jesus Christ. We're a Christian church, not a social club. We, we believe you have to be crucified with Christ. That you have to give up your own righteousness. That you have to confess before men that He's the Lord of your life. That you have to turn from sin and turn to Christ. And you have to follow Him in baptism. Like that's, that's, that's a Christian. Be, be born again. Not just be born. So we have to understand, friend, I want to tell you this as a, as a, as a, as a friend to you. I, I trust you'll receive it that way, that, that what you need to do is recognize that before a holy God, you're bankrupt morally. You can't achieve the standard that he has set. It only cost Adam one sin before he was cast out of the garden. And we've committed way more sins than that. And we are born in union with that man, which means that already as we come into the world, we are defiled before the presence of God. Because Adam's sin is passed on to us. And then we actualize that sin. We live it out. And we work it out in our own bodies. And we add other sins to that. And what we desperately need is to come into recognition of that. That before God, I am undone, defiled, unclean, cannot approach his presence. But he has made a way for you to be reconciled to him. He sent his own son to succeed where Adam failed. To obey every law that he ever committed. And just as Adam's sin was transferred to you, so Christ's righteousness can be transferred to you. And his perfect life can be added to your account. And so this morning, if you sit here and you feel your sin and you feel like you're undone before the presence of God. And you feel like even as you worship, you're defiled. You can be clean this morning. Jesus will wash you anew. Repent of your sin. Believe in Jesus. And you will be made a new creation in him. And then tell somebody about that. Talk to somebody. Talk to a pastor. Talk to a friend. So what Haggai does in response to this imperfect obedience is to point the people back to the great turning point in their experience when they began to work on the temple. Remember that stirred heart? Remember that fear that you had? Remember that obedience that you gave just those several months ago? Well, consider that and do that continually. Verses 15 to 16. Now then, consider from this day forward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple, how would you fare? So remember before we got started on this, what happened to you? You had a stirred heart. You were fearing the Lord. So doesn't this point to our need for continual renewal as God's people? I think it does. I mean, it reminds us that just because we experience some moving of the spirit in our lives that we don't need that anymore. Like we can live on that it's like gas, you know, like I've got a good charge of gas in my spiritual tank. I can live on that for four or five months. Nope. You need to continually come before the presence of God, continually repent of sin, continually trust in Jesus, continue to plead for it to him as a son to a father For mercy and grace and help in time of need. Haggai says, remember how miserable and frustrated you were before we got started on all this? And your disobedience had led you to so so much unsatisfaction? Well, don't go back to that. He said, don't go back to that. Don't go back to that. Repent. Even though you don't sense God's blessing now. Keep repenting. Keep low. Keep dependent. Keep fearful. In the right sense reverential keep dependent, keep pursuing God. It's utter folly to go on and sin. Now, if it cost you so much, then don't go back. So he's, 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 what he's doing is he's called him off the court and he pulled him into a huddle. Okay. So like a good coach, the team is sagging. They're just sagging. This is difficult work. It's discouraging work. None of us would sign up for this. This is not a pleasurable working environment. Rebuilding a hard temple in the middle of a destroyed Jerusalem, with enemies and persecution all around. They're not having. This is not a peaceful and working environment. This is hard. And so he's like, "All right, guys, time out. Come on." So he pulls them in. He comes, brings them in the huddle, and he said, "All right, I want you to remember something. Remember four months ago when we were back in the practice and we were we were talking about this on the court, and you would you know you had already experienced this before. Do you want to go back to that?" No, no, coach, we don't want to go back to that. All right, then press through the difficulty. Let's go. All in, go team. That's what, the, that's what he's doing. He's calling them back to himself and, well, calling him to Haggai's calling them around and then exhorting them and encouraging them. And notice how he encourages them. He says this three times in verse 15, verse 18, and verse 19. From this day onward. Do you see that? Verse 15. Now then, consider from this day Day onward verse 18 consider from this day onward into verse 19 but from this day on I will bless you can repent continue to repent even when you don't see God's blessing now it's only been three months since you began to build the seed is not in the barn but it's in the ground the seeds not in the barn but it's in the ground. It's going to grow. The time for fruit bearing is coming. I'm not against you, God says. I am for you. I will bless you. Keep at it. Put your hand to the plow. Don't quit. Keep working. Keep pursuing. Don't give up. I'm for you. I will help you. Consider your ways. Cleanse your hands. Keep working on my house. I promise to bless you. Let that be our tenacious, dogged pursuit after this fast. Let us stay After it, even if you don't experience God's immediate blessing, stay dogged in your determination to pursue God. He's not against you just because you don't feel any different or just because you don't sense in your spiritual life any immediate renewal. He's not against you. It's not discipline. He's drawing you out. Wait for me. When the harvest time is over and you still see no fruit, wait for me. The fruit bearing will come. I'm for you. I will help you. So that's the second encouragement. The third and final encouragement is hope, even though you don't see God's plan now. So we've seen To work, even though you don't see God's glory now, repent, even though you don't see God's blessing now, and hope, even though you don't see God's plan now. And they didn't see God's plan. He, other than just the word, I will bless you, I am with you. Keep at it. The latter glory will be greater than the former. So he comes to Haggai, or comes to Zerubbabel. Haggai comes to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, the guy in charge, the head honcho, the chief here, the governor of the people. And says to him, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth, God says, and to overthrow the thrones of the kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down. Every one by the sword of his brother on that day, declares the Lord of hosts. I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Notice God has a definite plan here, doesn't he? He has a definite plan. As we sang this morning, the secret mysteries belong to you. We only know what you reveal, right? We don't know everything, but God, we do know this. God has a plan. He isn't obligated to tell us what it is. He has one. He said, I'm going to shake the heavens. I will overthrow the thrones. I will overthrow the chariots. I will take you Zerubbabel. I will make you like a signet ring. I have chosen you. He has a plan. And he is able to accomplish his plan. Our text does not contain any conditions. God does not say, well, I hope to be able to shake the heavens. You know, but it depends on how men respond. You know, I've given them total, absolute free will. I'd like to take you, Zerubbabel, if you're willing, and make you my signet ring. Is that okay? Can we work out a deal? I sure hope that you say yes, because I can't do anything unless man authorizes it. No, he says, I'm going to accomplish my plan. God is quite absolute in this and declaring that he will do in the future whatever it takes to accomplish his plan. I mean, Zerubbabel could have easily said, yeah, but Lord, but we Jews, you know, we've returned to the land. We're pretty small. You know, not everybody came with us. We're just a remnant. We don't even have a king. I mean, I'm a governor, but I'm not the king. I've got no army, no weapons. I'm surrounded by hostile and powerful nations. You know what the Samaritans have said about us? They don't even want us here. And we're subject to the most powerful kingdom on the face of the earth in Persia. How are we going to prevail? What are you talking about? I mean, he could have responded that way. And we're not told how he responds here in the text because Haggai just leaves it off with God's promise. Because it really doesn't matter how Haggai responds. It doesn't. I mean, Zerubbabel responds. This is what God's going to do with them. So God accomplishes, but here's the key point: God accomplishes His plan that He is committed to accomplishing, but He's going to do it through Jesus Christ. Say, I didn't see Jesus here. Are you just doing that whole tricky Christian thing on the Old Testament where you just try to find Jesus behind like every bush? And no, let me tell you, let me show you why Jesus is here. In Matthew chapter one, verses twelve and thirteen, in the line of kings that's leading to Jesus, Jesus Christ, Zerubbabel's name is there. Check it out. Matthew 1, 12 and 13. These last verses in Haggai are messianic. They are not made to Zerubbabel the man so much as they are made to Zerubbabel the heir of David's throne and the predecessor of Christ. He's called the governor of Judah. It's in his position as that governor that God's going to accomplish something great. Didn't God promise to accomplish something pretty great through the line of Judah? Like bring a Messiah? So here... What we have is God's promise to fulfill the bringing of his Messiah king into the world through Zerubbabel's line. And Zerubbabel's included in that. Here's what one commentator said. Zerubbabel is a type of Christ, the true servant of God and God's signet ring. All that has validity in God's eyes bearing the seal, the stamp of his approval comes to us through Jesus Christ. Zerubbabel led Israel out of Babylonian exile and Christ delivered from the bondage of sin. Zerubbabel built the temple of God and Christ is building the spiritual temple, the church. Christ is the signet ring in and through whom all divine purposes are sealed. After the final shaking of the nations, we shall receive a kingdom that cannot be moved and all the nations shall walk in the light of God and he shall be all in all. That's our great hope. And finally, God's timing for fulfilling his plan is different than our timing. These promises were not fulfilled in Zerubbabel's lifetime. He never ruled on a throne over Israel. He didn't live to see the thrones of the kingdom overthrown. He didn't see his name in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. But did God tell him when he was going to show Zerubbabel this? No, he just told him that he would show him. Zerubbabel is going to see this one day. Zerubbabel is in heaven from all that we can tell. If he's in the line of Christ, he's in heaven. All right, so he's in He's he's there, he's trusting God, he wants to follow God, he's led the people on, with a very difficult task. He believes God, he loves God, he wants to follow him. And he says to him, look, I'm going to shake the heavens one day and I'm going to shake the nations and I'm going to make sure that, that my throne is established. And Zerubbabel will see that one day. He knows more of it now than we do, for he's in the presence of God, but... One day he will see it in its fullness and we wait for that day. You know, it, this, this call to wait is not easy. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 4 says that unbelievers will say, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. In other words, you Christians talk a lot about Jesus coming again. I haven't seen anything like that for the last 2,000 years. What makes you think it's going to happen Anytime in the next, in the near future or in the far future. But as Peter goes on to point out, do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's what's holding the kingdom up. God hadn't got all his people yet. God still got people to save that Christ died for. And he's going to bring him into the kingdom of God. That's what's holding up. Jesus is coming back. He's still filling his family up that will one day populate a new heavens and new earth. And it's very common for God's people to die in longing and waiting for that hope. We I mean, if, if Jesus doesn't come back before all of us die, we will all die in that hope. And we'll be right in the hall of faith, just like Hebrews three eleven three 11, 3 says all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. God didn't come back. That's where I'll be dead in the ground, forgotten, but with Jesus. Dying in faith, waiting for him to fulfill his promises. Maybe some of Zerubbabel's unbelieving contemporary scoff, you know, you're just believing in pie in the sky, man, when you die. If they did, and if anyone scoffs in that manner at you, the correct answer is, yeah, you better believe that's true. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. 1 Corinthians fifteen nineteen. If you want everything now, it's pitiful. It's pitiful. Why would you choose the Christian life if it gave you everything now? Bad deal. Cross now before the crown? glory before glory? Who wants to sign up for that life? We sign up for what we get on the other side of the grave. The fullness of life and the presence of God. That's our hope. That's the hope that this nation, that this community needs to see. Not a bunch of Christians who are just as happy because they got everything else that everybody else has. But Christians who are tethered their joy and their hope to another life. As believers in the promises of God, we put all our eggs in the eternity basket. If God's promises about the resurrection to life and the judgment are not true, then let us eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. But if they are true, then let us work and let us repent and let us hope, knowing that it is finished, it will happen. God has made His signet ring clear. It is Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ has put His seal on those promises. And if God made Jesus to be His signet ring, through that sealed all His promises. We know we know this much is true: all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus, because they're sealed with His blood and guaranteed by His resurrection. Let's go forward in work, in repentance, and in hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity this morning to reflect on who you are to your people. Help us to have um, hearts that are in love with you and recalibrated to you and content with you. Help us to wait for you. Help us, to, help us to hope in you. Help us to repent before you and help us to work for you with all of our heart. Help us to love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength and help us to love our neighbor as ourselves. We confess that we are a weak people. We are like these people right here in the book of Haggai. We're just like them. We're so discouraged so easily, expect so much, so fast. We And it's, it's intensified by the microwave instant pleasure culture we live in. We hardly know what it means to wait in patience. God, would you help us? Would you come near? Would you satisfy our longing souls with yourself, with a vision of future glory? with the blessed hope of the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And may it sustain us in the day by day of waiting, working, hoping, praying, repenting, believing in you. We love you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your encouragement that you've given us this morning. We thank you for your promises. Help us to hold to them and help us to experience what you intended us to experience by faith in them. We pray in your name. Amen.